welcome to the Judgment Call podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk takers, travelers, adventurers, investors, entrepreneurs, or simply mind partners. To find all the episodes of this show, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or go to judgmentcallpodcast.com. For more resources, including how to become a guest, how to advertise, and to see all the lectures, podcasts, and books I would like to would like you to listen to or read, please also go to our website at judgmentcallpodcast.com. Like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or like us and subscribe to us on YouTube. That will make it easier for other users like you to find us later on. This episode of the Judgment Call podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is also my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the best travel deals for you as they happen. We do that in economy, premium economy, business and first class, and we screen 450,000 new airfare deals every day just for you and present the best based on your preferences. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% on the airfare deals. In case you didn't know, Americans and Europeans can already travel to more than 80 different countries again, South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium for free, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP. If that's too much for you to type, just type in mtp4u.com, mtp4u.com to start your 30-day free trial. I'm here today with Evan Weber, and Evan has been breathing digital marketing for more than 20 years. And... Uh, Evan is a cool dude, and uh, he now has his own digital marketing agency, and he's helped uh, over 300 companies uh, to fix their social marketing to improve their ROIs. Also, Evan has been a speaker at various industry events, and I'm very happy to have him on the podcast today. How are you, Evan? Great. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for doing this. You're definitely the expert in digital marketing, and it's it's a it's a big topic of interest to me because we we had this theme earlier in, a, in another episode where we realized, you know, with all this 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 scale that you have for a business now, attention is really where the scarcity lies, and attention uh, it really decides about the success or the not the success um, of your business. So I'm really really curious to to, to explore this topic a little deeper. Um, as we go into this, um, help us a little bit better to understand how you saw the landscape of digital marketing change over the years. What's your own personal development story with this? What did you see like back in the 90s, how it started and where we are right now? Yeah, thanks for a great question. Very broad, you know, broad to- topic there. But um, in general, back in the 90s, you know, it was really just very early days of websites, no, you know, the shopping carts weren't very good. You know, there's nowhere to really ad run ads. Um, Google was just starting, you know, um, very early days of pay-per-click advertising. You know, it was really all organic at the time. Uh, we used, I used to list on eBay um, with some, you know, early business partners of mine that, we sold antiques and we, we did a lot of eBay listings. So eBay was 
was popping. Um, as it you know progressed into the two thousands, then you then you get you know pay per click coming on, you know email marketing, blasting emails to lists got very popular. You know organic traffic was always you know popular, and then as you started progressing, you know Facebook came on. Um, and change the landscape. I mean, retargeting ads came on and changed the landscape, you know, tools, you know, e-commerce tools like CRO tools and other tools for websites started coming on and, and really changing the landscape. So over the years, you know, it, the early days, it was all organic, you know, that was the only way to drive traffic. Then it became making digital advertising work. Um, and then it became, honing the conversion rate while making digital advertising work, which allows for scale. Um, so that's pretty much how it unfolded. Yeah. I mean, I've been seeing it from, from my point of view, being an entrepreneur and, and starting businesses that are purely digital. And I, when I, when I go back, there, there is this, this, this strong, there's always a big new thing. And initially, as you said, it was organic um, but the, the name of the game was SEO. Like it was relatively easy to go on a, for a lot of search terms in the top uh, five, top ten of search results if you put a little bit of effort to it. And you could launch pretty much any company you wanted off this, and uh, because you, it was so easy to get that traffic. And Google had this massive amount of traffic, and the search engine, for better or worse, I think now is really uh, geared towards the incumbents. So the uh, the big brand names, those are people that have done really well in search engine game for 20 years. But in 2007, and you know, it was back in the times of BizRate. I don't know if people remember that, but that was the Google Shopping at the time. It was way bigger than Google Shopping. It was relatively easy to to for BizRate as well to basically be in the top 10 for any search term, say for an iPhone or for for even for 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 generic terms. And then there was this day um, back in 2008, 2009, when um, this, I mean, BizRate basically launched a $1 billion business off this, and then it was just gone. So Google just pressed the button and said, oh, we think now we, we gave you like a ton of, of, of traffic over the years, and now uh, we consider you guys spam and have a good day. So basically, they were blacklisted from Google. They were still in there, but they were not visible in the top 100 results. So basically, it's like blacklisting. How how do you deal as a marketer with these sudden changes? Right, you optimize for something. It's kind of like a hedge fund that optimizes for a certain um, paradigm out there. And then one day Google says, "Oh, by the way, this is all evil." And then now go figure and do something new. Yeah, well, that's that's a really interesting topic you bring up because over the years Google did crack down on sites with less valuable content. You know. As you know, as you had you had your own sites, content-based sites back in the day, you were able to drive a lot of traffic on your, you know, on your your own, you know, content-based sites. I recall, and yeah, those sites like BizRate, I guess let's use as an example. Um, but there was a lot of um, a lot of shenanigans used to go on in the organic results. Um, a lot of affiliates used to spam content into the organic results. They used to put up sites with you know hundreds of thousands of pages of manufactured content. And, and over the years, Google had to really filter the crap out. And, and they did they did a good job, in my estimation. You know, that being said, I'm sure some companies suffered, paid a price for, you know, riding off their previous rankings. And then, oh, one day, you know, your rankings aren't going to be valid anymore because none of your 
content's original and, you know, it's a bunch of product catalog feeds, you know. So, um, yeah, that was a, you know, interesting phenomenon. But as far as Google organics go, you know, I've, I've preached and lived by the same principles for the last 20 years. Frequent original content, you know, in a preponderance. Um, quality inbound links where you can attain them. I never buying links, but attaining good quality inbound links here and there. But really, it's a ninety five percent content strategy, proactive content publishing. And if you adhere to that strategy, you will gain organic rankings over over time. You know, the the more you publish, the more organic traffic you should get if you keep keep it up. So that's that's what I tell companies, and that's what I live by myself, my own sites. Any company I work with on the you know SEO strategy, that's that's the strategy, and it and I've never seen it not work. Now, where where it, it tends to produce rev more revenue these days is doing things like retargeting the the blog readers, retargeting the the people that come to the site organically with ads to bring them back to the landing page you want to convert them at, or you know popping up, building your email list. So squeezing more out of the content is all the thing to do. Um, in this day and age, then you can invest in content, invest in your growing your SEO, you know, your organic content. And, you know, in my opinion, it's easier to squeeze revenue out of that investment than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago before the days of retargeting ads, before other tools, you know, website based tools that help capitalize on traffic were in play. It was, you know, they come and they go, they come and they go, you know. Um, having a lot of organic traffic back back in the day didn't necessarily lead to massive amounts of revenue. It, it could depends on what's being sold and how it's being you know positioned. But now I, I feel like it's it's much easier to tie revenue to the channel. And when you say we're investing in you know SEO content, for instance, you know we're spending ten thousand a month or five thousand a month or whatever. We we know we're going to get this much in sales over time. So. Yeah, I wanted to use this example for SEO, and you're absolutely right what you describe in the story, um, how how um, it it happened. What I wanted to use is as an example for these big things that are relatively easy for an entrepreneur to take advantage of um, to get your product out there, and then they suddenly disappear. And SEO was kind of the first one I was involved in, and then the second one was Google AdWords, which had a lot of keywords that were really cheap. You could literally go to legal advice and buy it for two cents or five cents. Uh, maybe not in the US, it would go up to fifty cents pretty quickly. But it was there was a lot of inventory available for any entrepreneur. It was very affordable, and I agree with you. The monetization at the time was for hype because fewer people would buy things online and credit cards were online were less accepted. There was no Bitcoin. There was a lot of things that, that, that make sites very valuable and the traffic valuable now weren't invented yet. But as an entrepreneur, it was it was it was like you didn't even have to worry about getting the word out. You didn't have to do PR. You could do PR if you wanted to, but it was kind of um, seen as dirty so to speak, right? You didn't have to really worry about the the competition with with um, with the brick and mortar side or with other brands because you lived in a digital realm. And then um, Google AdWords and uh, the Yahoo was at the time still there and Bing is still there. And there's, there's a couple of uh, non-U.S. Um, giants who run this. They suddenly get really expensive, um, especially in the U.S., not so much for traffic outside the U.S., but especially in the U.S. 
And then 2013, the next thing came around was social media. And I remember that um, growing your Instagram was was easy as pie. I mean, you literally just put photos up and you had hundreds of followers just joining whatever you did every day. And then it was a time, 2016 or 17, when that was over. So it was the algorithm changed. Um, Facebook changed their algorithm, how they promote content in their own newsfeed. So suddenly, without changes on your own, and this is what I'm trying to get to, you 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 have this moving target of you you being pushed into an ecosystem. It works for you. It's cheap. It's affordable. You you can create businesses off that. But then usually it's Google or it can be Facebook or whoever runs this platform decides. Oh, by the way, the rules have changed, and for pretty much everyone, it becomes really much more difficult. Literally because they want to make more money, right? But how do you deal with this constant? You know, you almost. You, you keep running against the ball and then you pierce the ball and then you're like, okay, let's write this off and let's do something else. How do you deal with this emotionally and professionally? Yeah, that's a great question and a great point. You know, over the years, these platforms have increased their rates. Um, like you said, early on, Google, you could get traffic for 10, 20 cents, you know, a click. Now you can't get a, a click for under a dollar. I mean, they have minimums. They have in, in an uncompetitive niche with no competitors, they're still click cost minimums. So they never had that back in the day. It makes it a lot harder for newer advertisers to make Google ads work per se. Um, Bing is still, Bing is, uh, you know, they don't have as much traffic, but they don't have the, the minimums uh, that Google has. So I do steer people there or say, you know, you have to run on Bing ads in addition to Google ads. But um, it, it, Facebook as well. Facebook, you know, over the last couple of years, especially in the last year, has jacked up their rates um, during the political season, during the holiday shopping season, the rates went through the roof. The only way to, so this is the reality of digital advertising where we are. You're, you're at the mercy of the platform. You're at the mercy of the, how many competitors when they decide to jack up the rates. So you don't really, you can't really control that um, aside from good optimization and good management where it's, you know, applicable, but, Really, it falls to the website's efficacy, the website's effectiveness. So, you know, for instance, when, when I work with a client or any company that wants to work with me or my agency, I, you know, insist that they prioritize increasing the website's conversion rate. So I'll, I'll audit the website. I'll provide a list of suggestions, recommendations, tools that I recommend to boost conversion rate, things like social proof, the right review widget, the right pop-ups, the right automated email follow-ups. The list goes on and on, but uh, those are the main ones. But so, so the company, if so, you're if you're an entrepreneur, you're a new advertiser, you really have to focus on honing the website's conversion rate. And I feel like it can be done um, with all like the apps on Shopify and the you know the tools and the apps that they you know that are out there. You can plug into any e-commerce website or any website in general. The tools are out there. It's implementing them properly. So you need to bring in someone, an expert, for instance, or you need to learn up on how to implement those tools. Once, once you have the right tools running the right way on the website, you should be able to make the traffic sources convert well enough. That being said, there are other variables, like how much the traffic ends up costing, how targeted is it, how much intent there is with the traffic source. Um, so every traffic source has a different level of, of user intent. So like affiliate traffic, for instance, a lot of it doesn't have a lot of intent because it's a banner on a website, a blog, for instance. So you have to really 
try extra hard to make that traffic convert so they can the affiliates can make money and they can prosper. Um, something like Google, the, the intent is there. The search intent is there. So the, the conversion rate should be higher, but the cost will be higher. So any regardless of the channel, it's always the question of the conversion rate not being good enough. In fact, mo- I have a saying, you know, 99% of companies can't even realize all their search volume. They don't convert well enough. So 99% of companies aren't even able to come up and search as much as they ought to be based on their targeted keyword phrases because their website conversion rate is strangling their ability to spend, you know, and, and ability to realize all the volume out there, that their targeted search volume. So it's a huge problem. It's always been a problem. And over time, it's gotten to be a little bit more of a, worse of a problem because of the costs increasing further. So, but, but at the end of the day, you always have to really prioritize conversion rate optimization on the site or the landing page if you're going to advertise effectively online and, 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 and achieve scale. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about Shopify. Um, I, I'm, that's maybe just me. I, I know very little about Shopify and what it actually does. And is, it sounds like it's just e-commerce or basically just you, you have a site where you sell something. Um, in terms of products, um, but I, I think it's more than that. Uh, what I know, and that's only from Cloudflare, what they have done over time is because they run 50% of the internet traffic, you have an enormous amount of apps that you can basically put in between your site and uh, Cloudflare as a public access point. And yeah. it's all tracking, it's it's kind of heat maps, it's uh, ways to increase conversion, to track your traffic, is to retarget. So all these things they've been adding. I think this is how they make money because I always wondered how Cloudflare will ever make money. They have all this kind of dumb traffic and uh, they're streaming yeah. traffic and um, they seem to have no way of directly making money. Is Shopify similar similar to that or is it something completely different? I know too little about it. Yeah, they're, they're, di- they're different uh, platforms with different purposes. Similar in that they're you know, website-based, you know, platforms. Cloudflare is, is, you know, is more on the, uh, like you said, the, the, the access points to the website, right? You know, making sure it's secure, making sure it's fast, making sure it's all the things Cloudflare does that are very valuable. You want to have those things in place so you can, you know, have a fast website, have a very accessible website. Don't get your website hacked. So very valuable, you know, tool set, around Cloudflare, Shopify is, is more on the e-commerce side. So, so it's, so it's a true, it's an e-commerce platform that has a, a giant app directory, which they're basically a, a, a bunch of tools. There's, you know, several thousand, um, they call them apps, but they're really tools. So they have basically one click implementation into the website, one click in- installation of, of the tool into the website. So if you want to launch a customer referral widget, you know, refer a friend, Find the one you want, click a button, boom, installed. You want to launch a CRO tool, find the one you want, one click it, boom, installed. You want to launch a retargeting platform, boom, done. So on that level, they've far exceeded any of the other e-commerce platforms, in my opinion, for bringing tools to websites. And, and in my opinion, tools, bringing tools to websites has revolutionized e-commerce, you know, even before the you know pandemic and the the surge online, it was already surging. You know, it was already surging, it, and and the tools were were facilitating you know people purchasing online, and and it was helping. Um, that being said, so 
so where Shopify has really stolen, stolen the show is, you know, you can be a small merchant and they have a solution for you all the way up to the biggest merchants enterprise level. They have a solution for you. So now they run the whole gamut, the smallest to the biggest. And that's where no other e-commerce platform is, is, is touching them right now. And not to mention they have a really nice dashboard for their, for their store owners, their shop owners. They've put a lot of effort into building out the dashboard, making it nice, you know, making it suggest things, add this, add that, check this out, check that out. So they've, they've done a good job. It's taken a while to get there, but I'd say in the last year, year to two, they've really advanced the product, you know, as far as usability of the store owners and, um, so, yeah, so the problem, though, is, and while all of that sounds great, the flip side is people that launch stores aren't necessarily successful. So what's the churn rate? Um, you know, my gut instinct is it's probably over 70% of people that, that launch a store abandon it within a year or two, okay? Because they just can't make it work. They can't drive enough traffic to it, make it convert well enough to get a return, so they abandon the project, but that's, you know, that's just the flip side. That's like the underbelly of, um, you know, people that sometimes come my way and say, I have a Shopify store. How do I grow this thing? And then it leads into a conversation like this, um, of, of how it's done and why it's, you're finding it so difficult. So it's, it's definitely not easy to just, you know, throw up an e-commerce store and, and make it successful. It's still very, very difficult, regardless of how many people have surged online it's still a, a big task to make it work. Probably. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people jumped on that opportunity back yeah. in, uh, in in March, especially because seemingly a lot of demand patterns that have been stable for some time changed immediately. I mean, travel was was down. Um, there was uh, luxurious items were down. Everything that was you know not absolutely needed was down. But then there was a lot of PPE equipment um, that was suddenly needed and it was hard to get. Um, so a lot of people jumped into the scene if they had inventory, they had a supplier, and um, tried to take advantage of this. Is that something you can pull off in like a couple of days, literally a couple of weeks, or do you need yeah. like a more wholesome no, I don't, story I don't. and strategy to it to actually pull off an e-commerce store? Because I always felt yeah. it's very, very competitive out there. Uh, I, I've never really had an e-commerce store on my own. I always felt so competitive and has been super competitive the last 20 years that I always felt, so you, you can obviously pull it up, but how do you find the demand? Unless you already know the demand, like literally have a newsletter and there's 20,000 people on it that actually want to buy only from you. Um, but unfortunately, I was never in that position. Well, again, it's back to, you know, a very difficult thing to make work, regardless of how many people are shopping online now. You still, um, how to make it work, you advertise with Google, you advertise with Bing, you advertise with Facebook. You grow your email list, you find affiliates, you do things on the site to make the site convert better. Over time, if you do those things effectively, you can make it work and you know, grow it and make it work you know, methodically over time. But as far as jumping in there and making you know, a big splash in a month, no, I don't think so. Um, it, it may happen here or there with a, you know, some things, you know, may, may be able to uh, be the, you know, the um, aberration or whatever the word would be. But in general, you know, what I tell companies is, is you know, companies grow annually, right? Um, companies grow annually. 
what you do year two should far exceed what you did year one online. If let's say e-commerce, for instance, you know, year two will far exceed year one. Um, and then year three should exceed year two, probably by not the same amount, but still, you know, exponential. It depends though on the niche, how competitive it is, how good you're doing at selling on your site, what exactly you're selling, if it's in demand, if it's a good product, if people have a high level of satisfaction, so they repeat purchase. Many factors involved in making an e-commerce, you know, endeavor successful. You have to you have to hit on all those cylinders. You have to hit on all cylinders, um, make all channels work simultaneously. And that that's what I believe in a, um, a multi-channel approach, making all the channels, you know, work. They have to all have to be tested. You know, uh, you know, TikTok isn't going to work for everyone and Google isn't going to work for everyone and Facebook may not work for everyone. Um, but they all have to be tested with, with the right strategy in place, with the right tools in place. If you try to test them without the right strategy or tools, you'll end up saying this channel just doesn't work. And, and, and that would be an inaccurate statement because it just wasn't done properly with the right tools in place. So I, I hear that a lot. You know, Google ads doesn't work. Facebook ads doesn't work for me. You just didn't do it properly. Um, that being said, if, if, if I'm involved and it doesn't, it's not working, then maybe it isn't going to work. But still, it should be made to work. There isn't a channel out there that are that's a, what I consider a high quality traffic source like like Google, like Facebook, Bing, even um, affiliate traffic that you can't make work. If 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 people are searching and the product is fitting their needs, you should be able to make that work and get a return on ad spend. That's acceptable or ROI. But it's always a project. You know, every everything is a different um, you know different industry, different budget, different conversion rate. So it's. A lot of the strategies are the same, but each project is just its own entity, so it just has to be made to work. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned um, social media advertising, and um, I've been um, involved into some TikTok trials. I mean, just trying out TikTok for my own businesses, Ooh. and the the challenge seems to be twofold. One is you generally, if you have like an account on Instagram and it has a million followers, you kind of have a guarantee that, say, 100,000 maybe or 200,000 followers will actually see the post. Um, they might not like it, but they see it and they can react to it in a positive, negative way or they can just ignore it because they find it of no interest. With TikTok, the problem is is that the algorithm is not really taking into account as much the follower structure. So you might have 2 million followers, but you put up a post that because your advertiser post is sponsored and slightly different than the regular posts, they might only get a 1,000 views instead of like 100,000 or 200,000. So I find it really difficult to predict the success and also predict the deal with one of the influencers that you have to strike. Their current rates are somewhere around 100 to 1,000 dollars or even more than that. And I find it really difficult to a find the pricing, and the creators have the same problem, right? They have maybe some posts that are skyrocketing with millions of views, and the next one gets two hundred, and it doesn't really grow from there, despite huge follower counts. So I found it really difficult a to make that work, and then find an agreement that works for everyone involved. And then second, also third, I find it difficult to to convert that traffic. It's a lot of browsing. There's a lot of you know people who are underage. Um, the user base is very strong in the 12 to 18 year old, a little less or much less once you go further. And the credit card spending is just not a thing you do when you're under 18. And maybe 
some can some teenagers can use their their parents' credit card, but it's still the the way to actually sell something is very long, and it's more like a long term investment. But it's very um, it's very tempting, right? Because you 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 talk to 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 teenagers who have a hundred million followers, and they would say, oh, just do a post a hundred bucks, and then you're good to go. So you try a lot of things, and you. You, you kind of you lose a lot of hope. So that's kind of my personal experience with a lot of social media advertising. We've done similar things on Instagram and Facebook, but the influencers on TikTok are kind of a enigma to me. I don't know how to make money off, off TikTok. Maybe you know. Well, well, you bring up a good a good topic in general because um, the reality of it is even even influencers with a, with a large following on these platforms when they do an organic post, it may not do anything, right? Organic posts regardless of how many followers they have, may not do a dime of revenue. Or, or it may do a little bit of revenue. But, but in my opinion, you can't count on any revenue from a, an organic post. Okay. That being said, where the power of these, these influencers are is having them create the content for the company. So they, they create the content for the brand, and then the brand or the advertiser uses that content in their own ad campaigns. So you have a TikTok influencer or an Instagram influencer make a story for you, right? You take, you take this, you pay them for the story. You take the story and you run it in your own Instagram ad campaigns, you know, Facebook slash Instagram ad campaigns. Same thing on TikTok. You take the, you know, the vertical, you know, the vertical video, the story that they create for your, you know, that you're paying them to do. You take the content and you run it in your own ad campaigns on TikTok. And, but, but here's the, here's the caveat that strategy works, works well on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. I know definitively that taking influencer created content for the brand and using it in the brand's ad campaigns is a great way to make those ad campaigns convert well, especially to the retargeting audience, even top of the funnel. That's, that's some of the best type of ad unit you can use on Facebook and Instagram is influencer created content, right? But on TikTok, the reality of it is, you know, I don't care how cheap the traffic is, you know, as far as, you know, when you, when you pay to advertise, it could be 10 cents a click. If the conversion rate isn't there, you're still going to lose money. So their challenge is, yeah, they have a ton of volume, a ton of volume. But the only companies you really see advertising are big brands because they're throwing branding dollars at it. And, and I do see here and there, um, some smaller, smaller dogs like um, like a CBD company or a this or that, like smaller brands trying to run ads, you know, and, and try to make it work. But you know, I've run some campaigns on there and, and seen that it drives a lot of clicks and, no, and not many conversions, if if at all. But 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 that's my experience. I don't want to generalize and say no brand or advertiser can make that work, but. At least, is at least from what I've seen, and to your point of of the demographic and the nature of the app, they're not you know in buying mode. They're browsing, you know, idiotic videos. Some some more than others. Some are valuable. Some not. But um, the majority of it's not. Let's be honest. So so yeah, your your the main user base is are people that don't have income, right? And and that's one challenge. And the other challenge is, is the nature of the app is not exactly shopping oriented. Now they may bring that on as they bring on like shopping features, like what Instagram did, then maybe it'll get into 
a range of, yeah, we can get a return on ad spend here. But until they have good e-commerce shopping features, for instance, and things that really facilitate the sale or, or the lead, then to me, I wouldn't spend a dime on uh, maybe testing it a little bit, a few hundred bucks, whatever. It depends what, what, you know, what the budget looks like, but, but yeah, it's not um, exactly a direct response oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. I, I, I feel like it's something that has a lot of potential, but we, we will have to see how it actually plays out. Um, there's, there's an ethical um, aspect to this. And we talked about that before there, there seems to be the, the, the obvious interest from social media companies to get as much data as possible from you and harvest it across your browsing history. Any, any, they buy a lot of data from public marketplaces. Your cable company gives them your records. Your phone company gives them records. And Alexa has all the speech um, records that they accumulate. So there's a lot of data that they obviously need in, from a business perspective because all that targeting kind of runs through the AI and, and creates that model kind of, you're similar to that person where we know this person buys plasma screens twice a year. So you might also be interested in a plasma screen. So I, I fully understand the business case, but the, the amount of data that they're able to procure because it's gotten so big on one hand to, through their own activity, but also from third parties uh, like Facebook is in pretty much any other app um, that you find in the app store. Even if you don't use Facebook on your phone, you're still being targeted and fully surveilled by by Facebook. Yeah. What do you feel the the ethical um, story there is? Do you do? And obviously, as a marketer, you need that data because you need to make the ROI work. Do you think there there will be a backlash? And people have been talking about this, but kind of it's been ignored um, publicly for the last five, ten years. Uh, do you think this is going to continue, or there will be a massive backlash, and you you get kind of a privacy shield that you can can use in your phone or you can use in your computer? Um, how do you see this whole area? Yeah, I I think over time, you know, as the privacy stuff has unfolded, you know, in Europe and overseas, and a little bit here, um, over time it will continue to unfold and give people the option to remove themselves from being targeted in certain ways. But, but I have to tell you, I, I don't think, you know, a 98% of people aren't even going to care about, you know, not being targeted like that. You have a very small percentage of people that, you know, are obsessed with it. And then you have maybe a few that are concerned with it. But in general, you know, I don't see it really coming on too strictly because, at the end of the day, the you know online advertising world is driven by these platforms, right? So if you if you crack down on these platforms' ability to target, I'm not saying they should have free reign over anything and everything. I'm not saying that, but if you if you restrict their ability to target, it just reduces the uh, responsiveness of the ads and the ability to target and and things like that. So. I, the forces that keep all of that where it is, I don't, you know, some of these, these, you know, Facebook, Google, I mean, these are the biggest companies, Apple, these are the biggest companies in the world, you know? So they're not going to, um, you know, let anything jeopardize their ability to serve ads to people and, and make money off of it. You know, um, like I said, it may get a little stricter in certain ways, what you can and cannot do with data behind the scenes or, allowing a person to control how they're being targeted, you know, with ads, you know, and opting out maybe, 
but 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 again, I don't think many people are too really care about it or too concerned. They're just regular people going about their internet browsing on their phone or whatever, like they do, clicking on ads if it looks interesting or they recognize they were there three days ago or oblivious to Google's ads at the top if they're paid or not. Most people don't even give a, give a crap, right? So uh, at least here in the U.S., you know, other countries are I can't speak for, and I know they're they're more concerned about these things elsewhere. So, but I'm not. That's not my concern, you know, because um, my focus is in the U.S. But um, but yeah, yeah. No, understood. I think that's a very practical view. I, I feel like from a technical perspective, it's very easy um, to, to and Eric Weinstein was saying that uh, Apple goes through a lot of trouble to, to have all the activation of cameras and microphones completely software-based. Um, it would be much easier to have a little switch on the side from day one. Um, maybe now it's a little different. But they go through a lot of effort to collect that data. Um, but from a technical perspective, it's relatively easy, say, to reject third-party cookies or to have most, most of the apps open source in terms of their privacy issues. Um, and there were researchers who, who did this for TikTok. It's really not hard to see, like you analyze the network traffic for the TikTok app, and then you see what it actually does. It, it you know, every kid can do this, every 12-year-old. And yeah. then you just block the sites that are not TikTok servers, and then the app will stop working, right? But you could right. say, oh, no, you need to have verified, like we work with HTTPS, it needs to be verified your server, or you can't use this in your app. So all the tracking would go away, because then you know the traffic is only between you and TikTok. I mean, they can do something on server side, but that's much more within, much more harder to track someone through third parties. And the same is true like for browser identification. It's relatively easy, and there's browsers now out there who have a unique fingerprint. And so you can't be tracked. Every single request is a unique fingerprint. And otherwise, like right, right now, you don't even need cookies to track people. Right. So the technical abilities to prevent tracking is actually pretty easy. But as you say, I mean, the lobby billions are obviously on the other side. They're like, let's leave everything the way it is. Right. And let's make money from it. And I'm not denying there is efficiency, right? I mean, the, the, the way as in for, all, for marketers and entrepreneurs to target their, their, their potential customers is fantastic, right? This is this is this is something we've never had before. Um, there's this old statement that you 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 it's it's you never know which part of your advertising budget is saved um, and which one is 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 um, targeting customers who actually never convert. So you you go out and you let it rain, and you never know. Um, what conversion there will be and who's going to be responsive. But with the digital advertising, we have a lot more data and we go down really, really specifically now into targeting. And then the AI is also targeting, not just we target by demographics and by interest. The AI goes deeper into it and sees, okay, these people might be in the cohort that should be targeted with this ad. So I think it's a great thing for entrepreneurs in theory, but given that it's so monopolized, I feel it hasn't really worked out so well. So in, in my own um uh, theory, I feel the last five, ten years with with less of a widespread entrepreneurship and less adoption of technology, a lot of this is that on entrepreneurs, young companies, unless they have huge funding rounds like Uber had and obviously Airbnb had, it's very difficult for them to find their customers en masse. Um, it is possible, obviously, in a niche, 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 um, you can make this happen, but um, the 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 uh, the connection with your customer has gotten really expensive. And a lot for a lot of startups, 
they need basically free access to customers in order to take off, like to go to Series A or go to Series B. And I feel the the monopolization of online advertising is responsible for that. Like a big deal of less entrepreneurship that we've seen is because of the you know monopolistic practices that they have adopted in order to make money. Obviously, you know they they are following a path of of maximization there, but. I always feel there should be a competitor. There should be a next thing that's coming and that really breaks up that monopoly but hasn't happened in the last 10 years. Well, I, I agree with you that, you know, competition is good, but but the reality of it is there is no, there only can be one Google. There only can be one Facebook. There only can be one Instagram. There only can be one LinkedIn, you know, and there only can be one Twitter for that matter, but... Um, you know, these, these platforms, they've grown their user bases and their, and the, the user experience, and they all have their distinct advantages, right? Where they're light years ahead of, of anyone who would try to go in and do that similar thing. So not to mention, you know, Google is great at what they do. You know, they're all great at what they do. Um, so, and they have thousands of people working to make it better. So, very hard to compete with something like that that has such a light you know light speed advantage and so far ahead um, and so many developers on it so many high level people on it you're just not going to be able to catch up you know now that's yeah, for sure but but the but the you don't want to create a better google you do want to create a way to connect with your potential customers it doesn't have to be google right linkedin doesn't do what twitter does uh, Twitter doesn't do what Google does. So, but they all connect you with potential new customers. So, this is literally thousands of different applications who could do that. Some, I mean, some do it, right? I'm not saying they don't do it, but I feel there's there isn't a one a big thing right now for entrepreneurs to just uh, give to reach their customers for for very low amounts of money. They're, you know, Uber gave everyone free rides. That was kind of cool, but it's yeah. really expensive. Um, you can't you cannot do it unless you have a billion dollar funding round. Right. So I agree. Um, there's, it's really hard to become, to, to break into any niche as an entrepreneur, whether it's an e-commerce store or whether it's a, a SaaS tool, a cloud-based tool, you know, which is very hot, you know, been very hot for a while, you know, business tools, cloud-based business tools. But um, those are what I, I see the cloud-based business tools growing exponentially in this day and age, you know, more so than, in, than a new e-commerce site, for instance. Now, not that being said, you know, any a new e-commerce brand could could prop up like something like Roman, you know, um, and you know they they do it with a lot of TV advertising. You know, what happens with these companies? What I've noticed is they start they, once they achieve some amount of success online, then and they have that they have that investment round. They take the money and they they throw it at TV, right? And the reality of it is, TV does drive user acquisition. There's no doubt about it. So when you combine, you know, decent digital advertising strategy with a boatload of TV advertising, you can really ramp up your customer acquisition. But in order to do that, you have to have the money. So those companies have a, has a huge advantage that can actually tap into that, you know, that, um, that marketing budget and really, you know, blow through the budget. Um, whereas a smaller company is getting it, you know, getting it, out of the mud, as they say, um, it's much harder to make, you know, it work as an entrepreneur, bootstrapping it, you know, funding it yourself, you know, with 
who, who, you know, other investors money that, you know, you've asked whatever to invest. So still possible, but they would have to tap into a really, you know, someone who really understood digital marketing and how to do online advertising and make it work online. If they tapped into a, a someone like that, then, then in my opinion, they can make it, they can make it work. Yeah. 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 I wanted to ask you, that was kind of my next question. What is a, a company where you feel like, well, they've really been able to grow um, in the last couple of years, or last two years, maybe, um, in a bootstrap manner to huge audience size. Um, and on the other hand, um, as a success story, um, and maybe on the other hand, a company that where you expected, even with a big budget, it would make a big impact, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to it's hard to name names. I mean, most of the uh, the companies, like I said, that will um, you know grow, like I said, something like someone like a Freshly um, or Roman or you know companies that are able to bootstrap it and, and grow. Some box companies, um, you know, subscription box companies. Um, that's been very hot. There, I've seen several get get big and, and sell themselves, get acquired, and you know they didn't. There's have, a lot of wine companies like online wine stores yeah, that seem to have taken off. Box of you know uh, pet pet snacks, you know pet treats once a month or baby things once a month or the monthly box yeah. subscription services. You know, I've seen, I've seen quite a few. Of I those. talked to a perfume company, uh, like a monthly kind of random perfumes that you can try and then you get a little more in the next delivery. Yeah. yeah. Beauty products is very popular. You know, anything on a monthly subscription basis, monthly subscription stuff is really rocketed the last few years. So when, when people come to me and they say, what, what kind of business should I start? Anything on a monthly subscription, whether it's a box monthly box, or it's a online service that charges monthly, whatever it is, monthly, 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 there's, you know, subscription-based businesses are all of the thing to do because they're they're residual. They you know they're residual, so you can do the customer acquisition and then retain the current customers and charge them more. So once you're retaining and renewing and rebilling people, that can help fund or offset the cost of new user acquisition. So anything on a subscription basis is all of the thing to do, in my opinion. Um, E-commerce is tough, you know, to start an e-commerce store and make it work. Very difficult. Not even going to sugarcoat it. Um, so I see, you know, subscription stuff and uh, B2B tools, SaaS tools. Um, that's that's a good industry that I recommend people go into that are asking me what what should they go into. And, I, and I, I'm in that I'm in that space, too. I'm building tools and working with companies that build tools. So. In my opinion, that the tool, the tool scene, you know, is 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 where it's at, you know, where the money's at, and where the uh, I see a lot of companies like Intercom, Drift, you know, the list goes on and on of of cloud based companies that have grown exponentially the last three to five years and are really crushing it. Yeah, I agree with you. This this field has definitely been. I mean, for consumers as well as for businesses, um, I, I almost feel it's a little easier for consumers, the subscription model, um, but for businesses, I, I started a SaaS company, so to speak, 20 years ago, and it was just crushingly difficult to even under, to explain the model because at the, mo at the time it was you buy a license, it's a lifetime license, or at least it's a long-term license, and you put it on your servers or you put it on your desktops, 
And that was it. And we started that 20 years ago and said, no, you know, you pay $500 a month or you pay $200 a month, depending on, on the specific product. And it was basically only targeting um, businesses. And it was an almost impossible sell because they were like, oh, we don't own it. We, we will not buy it. I mean, but right. we said, yeah, well, any software you buy, you don't own it. You just get a license. And it was impossible to even explain. And now I think these higher priced, um, depending on where you start, Slack is doing very well with the low price tech. But generally, this, the idea seems to be if you sell the businesses, there's a higher subscription price, say $99 or up to $500 a month. And if you go to consumers, it's somewhere in the Netflix zones, it's somewhere between a dollar and $20 a month. That seems to be the, the hotspot. And I fully agree with you. This is an, an, a model that that incorporates a lot of um, um, the, it, it solves a lot of problems that online marketers have because the revenue per customer is relatively high because the lifetime value is relatively high because people don't just cancel their subscription there's a little bit of hassle sometimes involved and even if it's not, they like to try it out and then maybe they forget about it or maybe they love it um, in many cases so there is um, a certain a lifetime value that you can go out and raise money on right? if you have a lifetime value per customer that's $200 um, or $300, that's something you can even go to the bank. I think there's a bunch of people. You can even go to Stripe. Stripe, you can say, this is my, this is the track. You're going to use Stripe as your credit card processor. This is my track lifetime value. Why don't you give me some financing? And Stripe is very open to this now. They see your cash flow. Um, they give you money in advance. And that's not like, a, it can be a loan, but it can, it can be an equity investment. And there's a company I, I talked to, Pioneer, they actually track your Stripe um, as well, and they're part of the Stripe ecosystem. But they give you up to a million dollars if they see that you are scaling up your Stripe subscriptions. Oh. So they 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 don't even talk to you. Like they they look at your Stripe um, for two days and they see give you a goal and you break that goal and they're like, okay, here's the million dollars, have fun. <laughs> um, and they do this to anyone in Uganda or wherever you are. So. That's, I think it's a great metric, and not just for yourself because it, it works, but also because investors love this shit. Um, yeah. It's better than just eyeballs to see, okay, this this has a real value, and we put a number on it, and then it all goes down to the customer lifetime value. But then you're done, right? You can literally just uh, let it run on autopilot unless your acquisition costs change a lot. Yeah, all the investment is going into these type of tools. You know, they they, all, they don't, don't even want to talk to you unless you, you are billing people monthly. They, they don't even yeah. they don't want to talk to you. Um, and I don't blame them because every single one of those I've seen has just blown up into a huge thing. And yeah. you know, hiring all these people and, you know. And, and, and the funny thing is, you know, the people, they're not necessarily, you know, brilliant people that are coming up with these tools. I'm, they're smart people. Not Definitely, definitely are. Much respect. But, you know, I see people that aren't that smart you know, having wildly successful tools out there. And um, then this and, is the place to go, right? If, yeah. you, if you see, that's going to be the, the, the entrepreneurial test. If you see people who are kind of just got lucky and they're not, they don't really know what they're talking about. They still make a ton of money. Then this is where you want to be. Right. You never know if this trend lasts, but that seems to be the ultimate test. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, I think it's going to last. The only thing that wouldn't make it last is just saturation. You know, there's there can only be so many live chat tools. There can only be so many you know sales tools. There can you know that being said, if you if you do it a little different or you do it with AI or you do it you know something a little bit more effective, you can woo people over. You can say, listen, you need to leave Salesforce because our tool blows away Salesforce, or you need to leave Drift because our tools you know our our tools you know like Drift on steroids, or you know our our chat bot you know chat bot is 
superior to the one you're currently using. So there's always, you know, you can always steal clients away like that um, from yeah. competitive. So it's, it's, it's still very much wide open in, in my opinion. There's always still, you know, room there to make moves. Yeah, I think that's 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 really good advice. This is a hot segment, and I think it's. I agree yeah. with you. It's going to stay hot for quite some time, and it makes life a little bit easier. And the good news is also for most entrepreneurs, you can you can scale this up within bootstrap budget. You don't need to worry about a billion dollars. You don't have to worry about the vision fund overhead. There's very little overhead. Yeah, but you just need yourself, right? I need yes. yourself a little bit of content and maybe a few people that know marketing, and you can well, pull that off. Well, you do need the code. You do need the devs, though. You do the, the the cost is is in having the product the the applicant you know develop, developed you know the tool yeah. product or the app whatever it is the cost is really in the dev and having really good dev people you know on it once you spend what you need to spend to get the tool created then you can start you know and you bring on some clients and you can start hiring the salespeople and the customer success people and the you know all that and. And that can fund also more dev, you know, upkeep and, and, and building the tool into more features. And so then it's, it starts like snowballing. So, yeah, tools is, you know, when people ask me what, what they should go into online, uh, tools. That's my always my first answer. Yeah. Um, help me a little bit to understand how you feel this role of an outside marketing agency. It really plays out with but. Your clients, they might be a smaller corporations, bigger corporations, a single entrepreneur. Uh, how do you feel you, you can get this effective knowledge transfer to work? I think this is this is what you're you're really after. How do you a find them right and and b how do they how do you interact with a certain organization who probably already has good marketing who's been or or not? I mean, but I assume it's not terrible. Otherwise, they wouldn't be around anymore and they wouldn't want to spend money on you. How does this interaction work and? Uh, do you think it's gotten easier or harder to just basically be in your own or be in the part of a digital agency that isn't in New York City and has like 5,000 people um, over the last couple of years? Great question. Um, the agency, the digital agency game has, you know, gotten a lot more uh, cluttered. Um, there's a lot more agencies out there. I mean, there's people out there trying to convince people to just own agencies with no background. Right. I mean, there's courses out there. There's people pushing the concept of start your own agency with no experience. Right. Yeah. So on TikTok, I assume. Everywhere. Or YouTube. Yeah. Everywhere, dude. YouTube, Facebook, everywhere. Everywhere you can advertise, things like that are getting pushed out there. Um, so part of it, part of it is a lot of um bad agencies out there, a lot of crappy agencies out there. Um, where, where, where my agency, you know, is different is, is, you know, I, I work with all the clients myself. I have, you know, people managing the, the, the ad campaigns and optimizing them, but I do all the strategy, deal with the clients and drive all the, uh, you know, what's being done with the ad campaigns to make them work. The CRO on the website, like we talked about, um, unless you implement an approach that addresses the website's conversion rate and run very effective ad campaigns with the right strategy, that's the winning combination right there. Um, there's no way around it. If you, if you're, you, I don't care how good you are at managing Google ads or whatever platform it is, there's, you're still, you, you're still at the mercy of the website's performance or effectiveness. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, um, I'd say 99.9% of agencies will just come in there and say, oh yeah, we'll take over your Google ads campaign or your, 
LinkedIn or your Facebook ads and we'll just do it better. Right. Well, no, no, that's, that's a horrible argument to win the business. Not that that can't work because they do, they are able to, you know, just convince companies that don't know what the right approach should be that they can maybe do it, you know, manage the ads better. So, you know, there's also what also has to be overcome is previous working with agencies previously. They've had bad experiences working with them previously. Their in-house team has run, had bad experiences running ad campaigns that didn't work as well as they wanted. So you're overcoming bad agency experiences and in-house people not, not you know, able to make the campaigns work well enough. So Uh, But when I, you know, when I speak to the client, you know, obviously it's what can we do to the website to improve it? What have you tried previously? Let's analyze that. And I'm going to explain why it didn't work. And then, you know, we're going to come in and make it work better because we're going to address the CRO and, you know, manage the campaigns more effectively, in my opinion. And that that strategy in itself is going to lead to better results. Um, but as far as their in-house staff, I they'll hire me, clients will hire me to work with their in-house staff just to make them more effective, you know, digital marketers, you know, to how they're managing the campaigns, what their strategy is, how they're how they even perceive digital advertising and how to make it work and how to make it scale. So I'll I'll coach them, you know, mentor them, you know, hone their skills and and just turn them into rock stars, quote unquote, by just, you know honing their skills basically. So that's, that's something I do with companies that's can be effective. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, you, you mentioned that just briefly and I, I was approached, um, in, I don't know how they find me, but there must be a good way to look that up. Um, a lot of, um, agencies, so to speak, um, often from Eastern Europe approached me. Uh, one thing that I always get approached is build, we built your mobile app. Um, that I have like 30 of those emails every day. Um, right. But <laughs> that seems to be a thing. But the other thing that is more, it's much more rare, but it's um, companies that basically say, well, we give you, um, we change your, your AdWords campaigns, we change your LinkedIn campaigns, as you say, and they give us a week or two. And if the RI hasn't gone up, you don't owe us anything. Obviously, they don't, if, it, if, it's, if it's gone the wrong way, then I, I don't get anything paid from them. But they basically say, why don't you try it out? And if, say, have you run a campaign $10,000 a month, and the URI um, proves that your cost per customer goes down and uh, you save, I don't know, say $1,000 a month, you would uh, give that agency 20% of those savings or 50% of the savings. It's different pitches. I always felt that's a really strong pitch. I right now don't spend that much on, on Google AdWords, but I'm like, well, what's the real risk, right? The risk is that they miss that you overspend for like a, a week or two, and uh, but they must have done this before. You can check some of the credentials. I always felt this is a really good pitch because as an advertising agency, you really have no upfront cost. You you um, you basically work with the client. You're very much aligned. Um, and then you make potentially a ton of money, right? I mean, because if, if that keeps continuing, if your knowledge really shows off in these campaigns um, and the conversion goes up, you like make easily $1,000 a month from, from just one customer. Is it something you've considered? Is it something you find as common or you feel like this is just not worth doing it because you don't understand the concept? Yeah, it's a little, it's a gimmick, you know, like, like anything, it's a gimmick, um, you know, of a way to get in the door, a way to take over their ad campaigns and, and supposedly make them work better. It, it can work. It depends on those campaigns that they're taking over, how effective they were. 
you know, but, but like I said, if they're not addressing the conversion aspect, then, you know, they may or may not be able to run more effective campaigns. They may, it's, it's a gamble. It's a, it's a roll of dice. It depends. But, but how- Google and Facebook show you conversion, right? It's, it's very, it's very apparent what the conversion is. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that's the same lifetime value, but for like the short term conversion, it's perfectly trackable. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, it, it can be an effective way to uh, go about it, but, but, you know, just because they charge you in a gimmicky kind of way, in my opinion, doesn't mean they know what they're doing, right? Um, and they could cost you money, potentially. The, the, the cost per customer could go up, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, okay, we're not going to pay you any fee, but, you know, you, you just, your cost per customer just went up. So it, it's, it's truly a roll of the dice. Um, and, and I wouldn't hinge the decision on any kind of, like, way they charge. Um, I wouldn't base the decision on that because regardless of how they charge, you know, what you want are better results at the end of the day. So it's about, to me, it's about there's the strategy, the approach, the methodology, the process, you know, who's actually managing the ads. Are they actually trying to make the conversion rate go up? You know, if those things aren't, you know, in place, then, then I don't, it doesn't, how they charge is, you know, pointless in my opinion. Um, now we have done things where we we would charge like a um, a percentage of the of the of the return on ad spend or the or the ROI. So you can charge based on not not a monthly fee necessarily, but you know twenty percent of the return on ad spend, for instance, or twenty percent of the profit. There's there's different ways of structuring it. Um, I, I've always been comfortable the way the way I do it. You know, I'll, I'll do a monthly fee that's affordable in my opinion, and then we'll get a piece of the uh of, of the uh, revenue or the upside that we realize or we help the client realize we'll get maybe like a piece of the of the conversion increase there's different ways of structuring it um that work for both parties yeah yeah i you know i'm i'm asking for a friend for this one um no i'm i'm just curious so the travel industry obviously um has fallen apart right 90 90% of international flights have stopped operating. And uh, depending on the country where you go, 50 to 60% of the domestic flights um, are still in operation. And many of them are certainly on a lower cost. So there's, a, there's amazing deals out there if you know where to look. And uh, the travel industry is, is close to my heart. Um, I have a current travel startup. I had one before that. Um, I was involved in another one before that. So I always felt like strongly about travel. In your experience, um, and given how much of a minefield travel is now, do you what do you think in the travel industries are trends that actually work? Um, we've we've seen the demise kind of of Expedia and Google Flights is now coming on and kind of taking over um, the whole flight search and the flight booking to an extent. You can't usually you can't book it through Google Flights; you have to go through another site. But it's kind of taken over the meta search, and it's also taking over what Expedia used to do to an extent. Um, Expedia is still relevant, and they're being linked, but um, it's 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 kind of in danger of dying out, so to speak. And most of the money they made came from hotels, and those hotel the hotel business has changed way more than the airline business. I feel. Um, where do you think in in digital advertising and digital marketing for travel do you do you have trends where you feel like whoa this is really going to take off and these are things that where you feel like whoa this has gotten much harder than it used to be well it's going to it's it's going to be dictated by you know the consumer's demand to travel you know when when that returns 
all of the, all of that stuff is going to return. You know, it's just going to take a little, it's going to take a while because of how everything was handled and how this pandemic has, you know, spread around and all of that. And I, I don't know what can be done. You know, I'd have to think about it. You know, what can be done in the short term to try to make the channel, you know, execute better conversion, convert better, you know, would always be my answer. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those things that, that the whole industry is just going to have to wait. You know, they're just going to have to take the loss for a year or two. And then when it roars back, be in a position to capitalize, you know, but it's going to be tough the next year, you know, um, until it returns to, you know, 70, 80, 90% of what it used to be. Um, it's just, it's just one of those things that unfortunately was really negatively impacted, you know, by what happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I, I, I feel the travel landscape will look quite different than it used to be. I don't think there's going to be, you know, you basically shut it off and then you switch it on again. And it usually you see this in, in other industries, um, kind of we saw this with the general e-commerce in 2000. A lot of stuff that was kind of hypey and didn't work or was just barely profitable anyways, that kind of went away. And then a lot of things that would have come anyways, what it might have taken five or 10 or 15 years, they suddenly just they, they, they would get 90% uh, of the market share. And um, I see this with Google Flights. I see this generally with flight search, what happened. And I feel there's a bunch of destinations who who are different and we, i see this also with uh, you know how airlines are operating this like qatar um you could say it was especially hard hit you can't even immigrate to doha anymore but they've been able to 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 keep up most of their travel network most of their flights um even to australia and those turkish airways they're basically back to the same destinations they had they don't fly daily but they have the same amount of destinations and they've been pretty strong and growing strongly and it's been a strong trend because their cost space is so low and they are basically back to old form. Obviously not the passenger volume is back, so there's only like at 60%, uh, but they only basically operate international flights. They only have like three or four domestic flights. So there's success stories, and then you have like KLM who basically shut down their whole um, their whole operation, or Norwegian that basically doesn't exist anymore. And travel um, as a digital thing was, was on the forefront, I think, for a long time. Yeah. Um, it was on the forefront of digital marketing. And then kind of, I don't know what happened, or maybe nothing happened the last 10 years. It didn't really accelerate so well out of this. There was like Iceland Air, um, I forgot the name, Wow Air, um, who really um, created a huge bus with their campaigns and came out of nowhere and just created this huge amount of flights. And then it went away again two weeks, two years later. Since true for Norwegian. So there was a bunch of companies who really used digital marketing to to the extreme and uh, then went away. And um, I don't see travel as much anymore as a as a um, as a trailblazer um, for digital marketing. Um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because the travel industry is such a weird place. It is a really weird place with very conservative people, but conservative in a weird way. Let's put it this way. They really have zero curiosity. There's zero interest in innovation. Well, you're right, because for many years, travel, you know, companies, you know, Travelocity, Expedia, Priceline, they, they, they really, you know, led definitely the travel industry. But, but like you said, digital advertising, those are some of the biggest advertisers, right, online, because that was such a good, so many people traveled and it was just a good industry to be in until 2020. Um, 
Actually, I felt even before that, and like the last ten years, there wasn't as much. The, the volume was maybe the same, but the, the the growth rate and the the innovation was basically going down zero before that. Like say 2015 already. Yeah. Well, well, I think some of that is you know it it, it evolved as much as it could. You know, it evolved as much as it could because it was such a good industry to be in for so many years that that funded a lot of the evolution of those companies and what they were doing online. Um, and then it all had to come to a screeching halt. But yeah, I mean, it got saturated like anything, you know, travel, but, but travel was still pumping along, you know, all the way up until last year. I mean, it may have been, you know, plateauing, like you said, for, for a few years because it had reached a high level. It had reached saturation. You know, there's only so many people traveling. There's only so many, you know, ads you can run. So that may be part of it. It's just they, it reached saturation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that um, maybe positive note, because it's hopefully going to come back. Um, uh, thanks for doing this, Evan. Uh, that was fantastic. I learned a lot. Thanks for, for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it, it definitely will come back. And you know what's going to, you know, what's going to, you know, they'll be, uh, they'll be testing people and vaccinating passports, you know, vaccine passports. And they're going to do what needs to be done to get the travel industry back up and running. It's just going to take yeah. a, little, a little time to get those ducks in a row and get those processes in place. But once, once all those logistics are, are in place and everyone's getting vaccinated, it, it's going to come back, roaring back. It's definitely going to yeah. come roaring back. So, so the key is to be positioned well when it comes roaring back. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Oh. Well, thanks again for doing this. Um, and I hope we can talk again uh, once things have changed a little bit. And uh, I hope to see what's the next big thing in advertising. Yes. Thanks for having me. Evan, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.